Okay, everybody, we'll, we'll make a start. Uh, on behalf of the university, I'd like to welcome everybody to uh, the first in the 2015 series of the Medical uh, Detectives Lectures. Uh, my name's David Argyll. I have the privilege to be a professor in this university and head uh, of the vet school. Uh, the Medical Detective uh, Lectures, if you've been to them before, were inspired by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was probably lectured to in this very uh, lecture theatre and studied medicine here at the University of Edinburgh between 1876 and 1881. Um, the purpose of these lectures are really to demonstrate the university's internationally acclaimed medical research, uh, both human and veterinary research, we go across the species, uh, and explore the detective work using keen observation and deductive reasoning, like Sherlock Holmes, uh, that's required to solve the mysteries of human and, human and animal uh, diseases. And we want to improve clinical diagnosis, therapy, and treatment strategies. And by having these lectures, we want to inspire uh, debate uh, amongst you in the audience as well. So this first lecture of the series uh, this evening, uh, we'll look at man's canine companion, the dog. No other terrestrial species of animal is as diverse in its morphology as man's best friend, the dog. Today, more than 400 breeds of dog are recognized worldwide. Why and how did dogs evolve so rapidly and broadly, we're not so sure. So Dr. Schoenbeck uh, will discuss the scientific advances that have occurred in the last decade that have enabled researchers to begin unraveling the mysteries of canine diversity. Just to say a little bit about Jeff, uh, we were very lucky to recruit Jeff in, in 2013. He began his tenure at the University of Edinburgh as a Chancellor's Fellow. His interests include canine genomics and morphology, particularly as these themes relate to the development and disease. Dr. Schoenbeck's interest in morphology began crystallizing during his graduate training in the laboratory of his thesis advisor, Dr. Uh, Deborah Yellen, at the New York School of Medicine. During this time, he studied development processes of the heart formation using the zebrafish model. Prior to joining the Roslyn Institute in the University of Edinburgh, Dr. Schoenbeck was a postdoctoral fellow at the National Human Genome Research Institute in the United States in the laboratory of Dr. Elaine Ostrander. There he contributed to numerous projects aimed at defining the genetic underpinnings of the canine breed traits such as body size and skull shape. While based in uh, Elaine's lab, Dr. Schoenbeck developed quantitative methods to assess the complex three-dimensionality of canine skulls. He applied this data to genome-wide association studies to identify DNA changes within dog breeds that are responsible for their breed-defining head shapes. Currently based at the Easterbush Research Campus, Dr. Schoenbeck divides his time between the Roslyn Institute and the Royal Dick School of Veterinary Studies, drawing upon the physical and intellectual resources, I like that, uh, of, both, of both institutes. Um, and in collaboration with his new colleagues, Dr. Schoenbeck is helping to drive projects whose, who, whose aims are to improve both human and canine health. Um, so I'd like to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Schoenbeck to deliver this lecture. It is doggedly dependent. I have it on good authority that up until last Thursday it was doggedly independent <laughs> and he's now changed the title. Um, so um, over to you, Jeff. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, David. Well, thank you all for joining me tonight. 
Uh, I hope that by the end of the, tonight's lecture, you're as excited about dog genetics and morphology as I am to present it to you. Um, this is a little bit of a new layout for me, so if I bumble my way through, hopefully it'll, it'll get a little smoother as we progress. It's, it's a great honor to be here, and you know, I, when I told my wife that I was going to give this lecture in this, this grand, very ornate hall, and, and, and I tried to describe what it looked like, and, and uh, I was looking for advice, and she said, well, you, you better get a haircut. And I, I, I didn't get that done, but I hope, hopefully we can progress through that. I got other advice, and they, they said I should, uh, I'm American, and being in the UK, we don't have a great reputation for being funny. So another American said, well, try to put some jokes in there. We'll see how it goes. It doesn't, it's not um, a strong point of mine. I thought, so, you know, this weekend, I'm, I was really struggling trying to put this talk together, and, and um, I'm thinking, you know, what is the mystery here? How am I going to, you know, tie this into the theme of this lecture series? And, and this is really my selfie, and this is what I did all day Saturday. Um, but I thought, okay, let's, let's at least begin by telling you what I'm interested in and what, why I'm here. So as David had mentioned, um, my interest in uh, really began uh, in graduate school, my PhD in development. And there, I, you know, I was, I was interested by the themes of how animals can change form. Um, and of course, um, evolution is very tied into development because, I mean, what is evolution but the way species have evolved that, to change to fill certain niches in their environment? Um, and when you're studying development and evolution, if you, if you really want to pay the bills in the lab, you also have to take into consideration health. And, and that's not a joke. I, I'm very serious that you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in companion animal health as well as keeping an eye on human health. What can we learn from dogs to inform us about human disease processes? And in my worldview, these four different themes are really bound by genomics. It's the genes that really change and drive evolution. It's the genes that tell um, a heart to, to create the shape that it has. And it's also the genes that can go awry and give rise to both companion animal health issues as well as human diseases. So these are all very interrelated uh, subjects. And uh, where do I study these? Well, I'm fortunate enough to be based out at the Easter Bush Veterinary Campus. So for those of you that haven't ventured five miles south of here, it's beautiful. There's sheep everywhere. There's horses. I'm in this building up top. Um, somehow I wound up in a, in a very nice office. Thank you, David. Um, previously, I overlooked a trash compactor. But so uh, that was an upgrade in of itself. But the real upgrade for me is that I was located also next door to the Royal Deck School of Veterinary Studies. So over at the Rosalind, where I spend half my day, I can think about basic biological sciences. And then when I need some, you know, I, I need some help uh, understanding medical uh, problems, diseases, or even how to gather really precise data, I can just slide over to the Royal Dick. And I have wonderful colleagues there to, to guide me along my way. And of course, passing this fellow every day, he never smiles. I don't know why he frowns all the time, but um, it, it's an impressive place. So obviously, you know, I could go on and on. But you probably don't, not that interesting in me, but so what am I going to talk about? And I thought and I thought, and uh, here's what I settled upon. I hope you're excited about this. We're going to talk about your mascot in Scotland. 
I, I assume that, I mean, th this is like my bald eagle. I assume the Scottish Terrier is really, you know, what, what uh, you guys, uh, the Scottish at least in the crowd, rally behind. And so, more broadly speaking, we're really going to talk about this transition. How in the world did man domesticate this beast and create the lowly French bulldog or the tremendously powerful mastiff or this dachshund that barks and barks and barks? <laughs> so, in, in, as David had mentioned, we're up to 400 breeds worldwide. How did we wind up with such diversity? And this is really the central question that, uh, that, that drives my research. And it's not really a, a new question by any stretch. Um, this man, this is Charles Stockard. He's a, um, a professor at uh, Cornell University. And back in the 30s and 40s, uh, Charles was very interested in, in this idea of how genetic traits could be passed on and dictate uh, shapes. So he, he did what he could at his time. He, he bred dogs and tried to follow how dogs, how the shapes would change in the progeny. So he started off with his bulldog versus a German shepherd. A bull shepherd, I guess. This guy's great. He's, he's real, in my book, he's the founder of the original designer dog. So he didn't just stop with this cross. He took the bulldog and he crosses a basset hound. And he looked at how these dogs, their pro, these progeny changed in form. Dachshund versus Brussels Griffon. Pekingese versus Saluki. I don't know how he did it. I assume there's a little bit of help to, get, uh, to make this cross happen. So the, you know, Charles Stockard was already thinking about this in the 30s. But really, the question goes much earlier than that. And it's really uh, this phenomena of how breeds came about um, really crystallized, I think, during the Victorian era in the 18th and 19th centuries. You know, dog breeds were beginning to be ingrained in, in European society. P you know, Europeans, uh, Europeaners were, were wealthier. They could maintain colonies of dogs. And they started breeding dogs that had specific traits that, were, that had name recognition, if you will, brands. And so during this time, the Kennel Club was uh, born, as well as the North American Kennel Club, a predecessor of the AKC. And this wasn't lost upon Edinburgh's most famous dropout student. Uh, Charles Darwin was there living it, seeing it. And many have, have actually suggested that perhaps observing the evolution of dog breeds and how they came about is really, you know, perhaps this has inspired Darwin to think about in the natural world how, how selection acts upon and, and dictates form. So, you know, we're not talking about natural selection, of course, tonight. We're talking about artificial selection. So in, in, our, in our case, we're really talking about man supplanting nature. And the question is, what, were, you know, what are men and women breeders? What have they been selecting upon? And you know, this, this question uh, really remained, I'd say, fairly static up until 10 years ago. I mean, yes, I, I don't mean to belittle the fact that there were people out there that were mapping traits, but they were really bound to the, something like this, some really complex pedigree, and trying to understand whether the trait or the disease they were looking at was recessive or dominant. Or um, it, it, It's not trivial when you work with dog breeds, because many of these uh, individuals are interrelated to each other. The other problem is, uh, besides the families being complex, the markers that uh, we use for mapping, these things that tag parts of the genome, 
Well, they had to be discovered. And when you don't have uh, really a full genome to work with, this is a lot of work. So I was fortunate enough to leave graduate school right around the time when Shadow was sequenced. Shadow was the first dog that was actually sequenced. Um, it was light coverage, but it was, it was a start. Shortly thereafter, Tasha the boxer was sequenced by uh, Shostin Limblad Toe and, and uh, a large group of, uh, it was a large collaboration. So this really opened up new realms in, in terms of dog genetics. We had chromosomes finally, we had genes, we had markers, and this information got piped into uh, genome browsers. So little old me could hop onto a computer and type up my favorite gene, and I could pull up that gene and find its neighbors and really understand the geography of, of the dog uh, genome. And this is tremendously helpful if you want to map traits. Shortly thereafter, and these are byproducts of uh, the genome, uh, the, the assembly that was produced were SNP chips. So we had a platform where we could rapidly analyze uh, dog uh, genomes and, and look at these markers very quickly. And so this, this in of itself was a, was a, a revolution, but it, op it opened up a new type of, of scientific approach to mapping diseases and traits, and that's the genome-wide association study. So for example, you could look at, in this case, borzoi. And over here, we have some borzoi that are, let's say, healthy. And over here, uh, a, a cohort or, or a group of borzoi that have some type of uh, uh, genetic-based di uh, disease. And by comparing these animals, we could understand or pinpoint where perhaps uh, that disease is located within the genome. We could also use this approach, again, using chips to do trait mapping. So instance, may, maybe we want to uh, identify things that are driving body size. So we could take a, a, a group of unrelated large animals, large dogs, and compare them to small dogs. So this was fantastic. And this is when I started my postdoctoral fellowship. This is the, the new uh, paradigm that was opened up to me. And finally, there are these things, the whole genome sequencers. And so uh, around the same time, uh, these very expensive machines came out on market. And the benefit is we could take a dog and sequence uh, its genome in a matter of days. Tremendous amounts of information, tremendous amounts of data. And these, the prices to run these, these instruments have been nose diving for the past couple years. Originally, uh, back in 2001, it was estimated that it took $100 million to, to sequence a genome. We're rapidly approaching the $1,000 mark. We're not quite there yet, although Illumina would tell you uh, if you buy $10 million worth of their kit, they could get you there. But I think soon we will legitimately be there. So great, so now we have uh, some of the tools that, that can allow us to map diseases and traits. But let's get back to our friend, uh, the lowly Scottish Terrier. So up here are some of my, my, my favorite traits and we're gonna talk about, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, in the interest of full disclosure, the first portion of my talk is not data that I generated. But I think it's important for you to know about this data so that you can appreciate the, the, the work and the, the love that breeders had for making this dog look the way it does. So, um, we're not gonna get into coat color tonight, but we are gonna get into these other traits. And I hope you, you uh, appreciate uh, just the genetics that went into this. So 
Our story, though, really begins 400,000 years ago. And this uh, uh, somewhat complex figure, what we're looking at is uh, on the y-axis, thousands of years. And then we're looking at offshoots of this uh, common ancestor up here. So up here would have been some kind of wild canid that was not a wolf. It wasn't a jackal. It was somewhere in between. And about 400,000 years ago, there was a split. So that over here we had wolves, and over here we had jackals. And it's about, uh, roughly we estimate from the genetic analysis, around 15,000 years ago, maybe a little bit sooner than that, there was another split. And this was a bifurcation of between gray wolves and dogs. And so to the point where today we have dogs, we also have kind of wild varieties of dogs, like not quite wild, but Basenji and Dingo. And that's not to say there isn't cross-exchange of genetic information that's still happening today. But by and large, we think of around roughly around 13,000, 15,000 years ago, dogs were on their way to becoming what they are as we recognize it. Now, just to put things into perspective, though, most dog breeds are really only 300 years old. So if you want to know when breeds emerged on this y-axis, you'd have to, you know, go right down here. The one last point I want to make about this uh, entire figure is that in making dog breeds, we have a, what we call bottlenecks in genomic or genetic speak. And that's to say that there's a, you know, among gray wolves, there's a tremendous amount of genetic variation, different forms of genes and different uh, subtle perturbations in the genome that make one individual different from another. But when this split between wolves and dogs occurred, a lot of that genetic information was lost. So in a, in a sense, you can think of dogs as being very simplified in terms of their genetic structure. And that alone is tremendously helpful if you want to map traits. Because if you're mapping um, all this diverse morphology among breeds of dogs that are actually genetically quite similar to each other, we have less things to compare and to identify. So. In order to map traits, what we really need are two things. We need, we need something to map, you know, a, a trait or a disease. Uh, so either it's something very discrete, like either the dog has eyebrows or it doesn't, or it's something that you can quantify, you can measure. The second thing you need are actually, you know, are genotypes. And so how do we make sense of all this? So why don't we just talk first about asymmetric chondrodysplasia? So, we're focusing now on our, our friend's very stubby legs. So we're going to talk now about uh, genome-wide association studies. And in the case of being able to map uh, leg morphology, the, the study design that my colleague Heidi Parker in the Ostrander lab took was to compare breeds of dogs with very long legs to breeds of dogs like the Scottish Terrier that have short legs. And so we'd go to dog shows and we'd collect blood samples. Um, we can do that in the States. And uh, we take these blood samples back to the lab and individually we can extract their DNA. And uh, once you have your DNA, you hand it over to a fellow like David Morris who's up, uh, up in the audience, but, and he processes it for you and gives you back genotypes. Or if you were in those strander lab, you had to chop up the DNA and, and, and hybridize it to one of these chips. So at this point, if I could ask my, my lovely assistant to, to show you 
what some of these uh, SNP chips look like that David kindly provided us for tonight. So we have chopped up bits of DNA. And so we hybridize them to these chips. And these chips have literally thousands of little probes that pick up these pieces of DNA. And if you get a piece of DNA and it hybridizes to a probe, then you can infer that, in fact, this animal is carrying a particular variety of, of DNA. And this is quite powerful, but it, it's not really necessarily informative for one dog. And it's not informative if you have a bunch of dogs. But if you have a bunch of dogs with genotypes and you have a trait to organize them in, well, then you're in business. So for example, over uh, on this side of uh, these are chromosomes I should have uh, mentioned. Let's say we're looking at one chromosome. If we compare our controls to our cases, well, you know, the controls and cases both have red and yellow flavors of that segment of DNA. And that's not going to really tell us what, if, if our phenotype is there. That's, in fact, that would tell us, well, don't look here. It's probably not related. If we scoot over to the green side, well, both our controls and our cases have, are green. And this isn't really telling us anything either. But to, to, to fast forward, if we scoot over to the right-hand side, now we see segregation between uh, colors or types of DNA. And so we see, you know, by and large, our controls all have blue, and our cases are all orange. So something DNA-wise is segregating based on the phenotype that we're looking at. And so in reality, we kind of look at these using what we call Manhattan plots, where we simply lay out all the markers. Uh, we order them in terms of their chromosome. In dogs, there's 38 plus a sex chromosome. And then we look at uh, just how high the markers come off baseline. The higher a marker comes off baseline, the, more, the, the higher the probability that that marker is located somewhere close to something that's driving a phenotype, a, a trait, or a disease. Great. So that was tool number one. But we have a second tool, especially when we're looking for traits. So you have to remember, so way back when, maybe 200 years ago, um, Let's pretend I was a breeder. I, I had uh, my, my dog was carrying, uh, was pregnant. She gave birth to 12 puppies. And I ran downstairs to see how beautiful these puppies were. And lo and behold, a quarter of them had very short, stubby legs. And at that point, I thought, being the big hunter that I am, that would be the perfect badger hunter. I'm going to keep it. In fact, I'm going to brag about it to my friends. They're going to want some of my dogs so they can have badger hunters. We think this is kind of more or less what happened. So this little stubby-legged dog was you know, essentially bred and bred. Its other siblings, well, they were fine. They were nice pets, but they had long legs. They couldn't really go into the holes to get badgers. So, um, so it's this guy, this little dog that was being bred. And so at a genetic level, what was really being selected upon was leg length, this mutation, which I'm marking with an asterisk. So you know, this dog is carrying the mutation. This dog is carrying the mutation. But the stuff on the flanks that's far away from the mutation, well, it doesn't matter what the dog had. It could be scrambled. And you have to pretend now that generation after generation and generation of short-legged dogs have been bred. And what you end up with is a dog that has, very, uh, that has reasonably a reasonable amount of genetic diversity out on its distal and proximal ends of, of this DNA segment. But as you approach the mutation, all of a sudden, bam, like the, the entire area becomes homozygous, meaning both copies, we all have two copies of every area of our DNA, 
Well, they become identical to each other. And we call this phenomena a selective sweep. And we can scan, as geneticists, we can scan through DNA and look for individuals and look to see where selective sweeps have occurred. And this is particularly, again, very prominent in, in uh, things that have been selected, like morphological traits. So let's get to some real data. I mentioned Heidi's data earlier, and this is really what it looks like. So she took, she did a case control design study where she compared small uh, stubby leg dogs, our chondrodysplastic dogs like the Pembroke Corgi, the Basset, and the Dachshund. And she compared them to long leg dogs like our Collie and our Greyhound and our German Shepherd. And, and this is a tremendous peak that she had on, eight, on chromosome 18. Something there was segregating with the trait leg length. But if she stopped right there, she wouldn't know exactly what's going on because all this is telling you is something at this position is different between our short leg dogs and our long leg dogs. We don't know whether what's at chromosome 18 is making dogs shorter or whether it's making their legs longer. So next she used our, our, our second tool, our, our selective sweep scans. And so she looked at the genetic diversity of our long leg dogs and you can see it's kind of scattershot. There's blot uh, markers everywhere. And, and the line is just the best fit uh, going through those dots. Compare that to the red dots. These are, this is the genetic diversity now of the chondrodysplastic uh, breeds. You can see uh, it, it nosedives right here. And what this tells you then is that what, what is that chromosome 18 was selected by breeders to make their legs short. And so, Heidi went on and fine mapped uh, this region. And what she discovered was an insertion of a gene called FGF4. Now, FGFs are a very large family of growth factors. Um, they have a, a very uh, long list of uh, roles, but they feature quite prominently in developmental processes. And this particular uh, FGF, FGF4, was known already in mice and in chicks to, to really modulate limb growth. And so this was spot on. When, we, when, when Heidi saw this, that you know, there's a, an extra copy of FGF4 in dogs, it, it made perfect sense that um, this, this could be what's causing uh, this, this defect in limb, limb growth. I think the really important part about this, this um, finding also is the fact that genes throughout evolution have been recycled. That's to say, it's not that a gene in one species has one function and then in another species has a different function although that can happen, but by and large, genes uh, do the same thing no matter what the species. So you know, in this case, chickens, mice, dogs, and presumably humans, you need FGF4 to function properly in, in order to, to uh, have correct limb growth. Okay, so that's our FGF4 story. Now let's move on to our eyebrows and these breed defining, I mean, you can't have a Scottish Terrier without eyebrows and, and a mustache. So this is uh, an interesting story and it comes from a, a graduate student uh, that I knew, Edward Cadu, also in the Ostrander lab. And Edward, God bless him, he, he didn't really have a hair on his head, but he had a knack for tra tracking down uh, genes that are responsible for for determining hair traits in dogs. So what Edward did is he, he found, using GWAS and doing the same types of things, looking, scanning for selected traits, Edward found three genes, FGF5, 
different, different family, same family as the previous example with leg length, but a different gene, he found arspondin 2 and keratin 71. And so here's how it plays out. These three genes really explain these, all these different phenotypes. So if you have normal copies of FGF5, arspondin 2, and keratin 71, well, then you'd look like the basset hound. You'd just have a short, straight coat. Now, if you add a mutation into arspondin 2, then you wind up with a wire coat. If you tack on another mutation in keratin 71, then you wind up with a wire coat, but the wire coat is now curly. So you get, you get the idea. So uh, you know, if you want to make a golden retriever, well, you can't have the arspondin, and you can't have the keratin 71, because that's going to make it curly, and that's going to make it wire hair. You need long, straight, silky hair. So you can only have a mutation in FGF5. So any guesses where our Scottish Terrier falls in this scheme? A, B, C, D, E, F, G? I guess we just have G. B, someone say B? E. e. Very good, very good. All right, you guys are passing your, your genomics, your canine genomics course with flying colors. That's exactly right. So we're looking at FGF5 and arspondin. Finally, for those of you who are wondering what this little red rod is, that was my poor attempt at a wicket. Wicket is if you're in the breeder world, you measure a dog with a wicket so you know how high it stands. And a real breeder would probably yell out to me right now, well, you don't measure its rear end, you measure it on the shoulders. But that's where I, I placed it. So uh, we're going to talk about allometric variation. And this is really size or scale. And to summarize, this slide basically summarizes about 10 years worth of work. Um, and again, it's, it's, now we're, we're moving into a little bit more of a complex trait. Um, the trait isn't as discrete as it was with the wire hair or the, the short leg length versus long leg length. Now it's, we're, working, we're dealing with more like a sliding scale, something that's quantitative. And so what we did while, during my postdoc years, you know, we were measuring, we'd go to dog shows and we'd also measure their weight. So this, we thought this was a pretty good approximation of just how large the animal was. And because we were going to dog shows, we would argue we weren't measuring fat labs. We were measuring trim, um, ribbon-winning specimens. And so what, as the data, sh um, the way the data shaked out is that we were able to identify six different genes, or at least regions, I should say markers near genes that are very good candidates that could determine just how, how much um, size there would be in medium to small dogs. So these six genes, seven markers listed down here, really explain 50% of the differences in small to medium dogs. And that's tremendous, uh, that, that is a tremendous number. You wouldn't really see that in, in other species. So what, we're, so what you're looking at specifically though in this heat map is the difference between what we call ancestral versus derived genotypes. If you have an ancestral genotype at one of these positions, let's say uh, for the IGF-1, that simply means your genotype at this position matches what you would find in a wolf or a golden jackal. However, if you had the red variety at this particular gene, we'd say you have something that's derived. And this means it's something that arose in dogs alone, because we wouldn't find the genotype in jackals or wolves. 
And so if you want to be an Irish wolfhound, you can't have any derived alleles up here. You have to, you, these are, for those that don't know, for those of you that don't know your dogs, Irish wolfhounds are one of the largest breeds around. So you can't have the IGF-1 mutation or, you, or a variety of this, of this region. You can't have SMAD2 or SDC2. Some of you with uh, keen eyes might notice this, and I'm happy to talk about it after the talk. <laughs> but let's scroll down. And by and large, now as you drop in weights, these are weights, kilograms are in parentheses. Um, and so our Scotty's here around 10 kilograms, just under uh, around this region. So to make a Scotty, you need, um, there's a high probability that you have the derived allele of IGF-1. You might have a derived allele of, of growth hormone receptor, sorry, over here, here. And you might have something derived to ST, STC2, but you won't have anything derived for SMAD2 or these others. Now our Chihuahua, uh, among the smallest of the small uh, dogs, weighing in around 2.3 kilograms or less, well, in order to make a Chihuahua, well, you have to have derived alleles of, of basically all six of these uh, genes. And so what this is showing is a gradient, and it kind of matches the genotypes uh, nicely. It, and so again, so our Scotty being here and our, our Chihuahua down here. And so this is an example, I think, a nice example of how genes can quantitatively dictate uh, form. Now, you know, body size, uh, I did a little bit of uh, work on, but what my real love while I was a postdoc and the project that I developed and that I really wanted to bring with me to, to Edinburgh is here before you, and that's skull shape. Um, and I, I chose this picture of Rasmus, who uh, Lars Odemark, if you're out there and you see this video, thank you for posting so many free photos on the web. You, you really helped my talk tremendously. Lars, uh, obviously a Scottish Terrier lover, um, he took a photo at 9.30 a.m. of Rasmus. This is pre-grooming and post-grooming. And I think this really illustrates um, within this same individual who you'd predict has the same skull before being groomed and after, um, I think you know, it really illustrates the difficulty of trying to bin skull shape into particular categories simply by photos. Don't get me wrong, I tried when I began as a postdoc and I, and I failed miserably. So, you know, so I was there in Elaine's lab and, and uh, you know, I was complaining. I said, well, Elaine, there is another way we could go about this. Do you have $5,000? We could buy this instrument and we can capture landmarks off the skull and get their XYZ coordinates. So this is Alex Byers. She was a technician that worked with me on the skull project. And there she is with a skull. It's mounted on some plasticine. And she's uh, with, this, with this little uh, device. You can go around and you got a probe at the end. It looks like she's holding a pen, but that probe you can touch. And with your other hand, you take a click and you capture its XYZ coordinates. That alone isn't really a whole heck of a lot for your money, but if you include a lot of landmarks on your skull, well, then you begin to capture the shape, not only the size of the specimen, but you know, the shape differences therein. And uh, so we took 51 different landmarks. Now, in terms of our skulls, 
that presented yet a different problem because you know, we couldn't really go hauling this instrument to the dog shows and it's got this little pointy probe. And you know, the, 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 again, if there's any breeders out there, I, I do apologize, but, but you guys are a little high strung. And so you can't, you can't go up to someone who, you know, with their dog and say, could I, could I measure this dog's skull? Without, and, you know, this probe could blind the dog and uh, we, Elaine could be sued. It just wasn't gonna happen. So, we had to look for sources of, of data, of skull data. And so we set out on a quest. And uh, Alex and I divided our time at different uh, places that had large skull venues. Alex, I, I sent to some really sexy places. Oklahoma City, people's basements. There's skull collectors among you. I know you're out there. And you should come talk to me after the talk. I love to measure your skulls. So this is Ray Bandar's skull collection. It's in his house. He's married. Uh, he's 85 years old. <laughs> That's just a, up here's a view going down his staircase. And I, I take it Ray didn't come home drunk often. Uh, we didn't include that in our data. So that's Alex, she's in the basement and uh, she's measuring skulls, that's great. Oh, by the way, if you wanna know about Ray, he has a documentary. Seriously, some came, someone came and, and uh, made a movie about him, A Life with Skulls. Look it up. Here's Ray, that's Ray with a femur of an elephant. That's Ray with a pelvis of an elephant in his living room. That's Ray's bathroom. There's a moose rack in there. I suppose Ray didn't bathe often. So I felt that we needed to add some legitimacy to our data collection. So I, I chose to go to Switzerland and some other museums. And this is, uh, Switzerland uh, is host to one of the most beautiful natural history museums that I've ever come across. And the osteology and dog collection is curated uh, by Mark Nussbaumer. Now I do know these aren't dog bones. But Mark does look over these skulls, and the skulls are in beautiful shape. The skulls that he collects, well, actually, he doesn't collect. They're donated to the museum by owners. Um, so these are pets. These are uh, purebred animals, um, and Mark has the pedigrees of them, the age information, the cause of death, so on and so forth. And this collection is old. It's been, uh, it started, I believe, somewhere in the 1920s, and it's been going. Uh, currently, they're up to 26, almost 2,700 skulls, and there's furs, and, and 197 breeds are represented in this collection. It's absolutely beautiful. And so with this, all this skull data, we did something that you couldn't do in any other species. We said, well, we went to these museums and we collected morphological data, and that morphological data that we took from breeds, well, that would be representative of the genotypes or the animals whose DNA we collected at dog shows. So in other words, we collected traits from one place, DNA from another, and we made an assumption that the, the bulldog or the pug that I measured at the museum, well, its skull would represent that dog whose DNA that I acquired at a dog show, another pug. You really couldn't get away with a study design that, like that in any other species. But you can do it in dogs because breeds are so stereotyped. So we, the next challenge is that now we need to, to really uh, analyze this data and make sense of it. And it's a lot of morphological differences in skulls. And so we took an approach 
which we won't get into, simply called principal components. And it's a way of dividing up uh, this morphological variation into some kind of palatable or digestible form. And principal components spits out um, uh, morphological variation in successively smaller bins. So principal component one, I should, I should add, before we actually run principal components, we do a statistical um, trick to remove anything related to size. And so then what we're left with is the morphological variation of shape that's different from size. We run our principal components, and then we see, you know, we get a bunch of numbers. And, you know, numbers, they're, they're, I'm not mathematically inclined. I don't know what, you know. So um, we need to make sense of this data, all these numbers. And so one of the, the things that we do is we can take a scan of a wolf skull, and then we can superimpose, we can morph that wolf skull with our first principal component, and then ask the question, what changes in the skull? And so when we did that, we morphed the wolf skull, and up here is what happens when you go in the positive direction. This is a continuum. And you can see the, the rostrum of the dog gets smaller. The neurocranium, which I'm circling here, it gets rounder. And these zygomatic arches, which articulate with the mandible, well, they get wider. And what this looked like to us, well, this is very reminiscent of what we see in pugs and other brachycephalic dogs. Brachycephaly meaning short, wide head. You go at the other end of the spectrum, dolicocephalic dogs, and it seems like the rostrum is getting a little bit narrower. It's actually dipping down a little bit, so it's ventralizing. And this is really reminiscent of what we call a, a dolicocephalic dog, something like an Afghan hound. So just to look at this data in a, in a different way, now I'm plotting out the PC1 values. And you can see it really is a continuum by breed. So you start off on this end of the continuum, and you have your Borzoi, your Spanish Galgo, which is kind of like a, a, a Spanish Greyhound, if you will. Collies, Fox Terrier, Saluki, these are all dogs with very long faces. And if you slide on over here to the other end, Pug, Japanese Chin, Shih Tzu, Bulldog, these are the dogs that have you know, the, the very short faces and snort a lot. And then we have our Scottish Terrier. So it's not quite as dolicocephalic or long-faced as uh, the Collie, but it winds up over there. And just if you want a point of reference, uh, somewhere around here I do have a gray wolf, which I'm not seeing at the moment. Top row, Top row thank you. Uh, you th you'd think I'd know this data by now. But anyway, you see it. <laughs> Got to trust me on it. So, so there are differences in either end between uh, face size from the wild ancestor of the gray wolf. So great. We have genotypes on these dogs. Well, we have genotypes that we can use. We have morphology. We can overlay them, and we can do our GWAS. And that's exactly what I did. So and what emerged from this data is nine different regions of the genome that appear to be associated with morphology, particularly uh, face length. Up till now, I've been describing uh, Genotypes are collected in one area, phenotypes in another. And, and this really, you know, although it's worked well for us, we can do a lot better. And, and coming to Edinburgh, this is one of the driving reasons for me 
to come here is because aside from you know, the, the very nice people and the beautiful facilities and the haggis, I, I really wanted the ability to get genotypes and phenotypes from individuals. So I'm taking a two-pronged two approach. One is I'm continuing to collaborate with uh, the folks at uh, the Natural History Museum in Bern so we can chase down heritability. And uh, what's nice about uh, in recent years, the museum is not only, not only continues to collect skulls, but they're now collecting postcranial skeletons and they're collecting tissues. And if you're collecting tissues, I can get DNA from it. So we're, we're doing full morphological workups on the dogs that they've collected so far, as well as genotypic uh, profiling. And this opens up a lot of avenues. We can model the effects of genes and how much does a gene contribute to a per, uh, particular phenotypic process. We can also look within breeds. These are chihuahuas. And I think, uh, I don't know if you would agree with me, but not none of these skulls really look that similar to each other. You might be wondering also, what, you know, did this chihuahua get shot? It didn't. That's an open fontanelle, and in fact, it's uh, uh, still part of the breed standard in the United States. They can have a soft spot on the top of their heads. So we can map this. We can look at what is driving these skull, tra skull traits. And so getting back to our, our uh, friend, the the Scottish Terrier, I was really intrigued because recently I've been plotting face length and looking at face length in the Scottish Terriers and how it relates to other breeds. And what we see in Scottish Terriers is that they have abnormally large neurocranium. So this is the neurocranium over here. And I'm comparing it to the, I made a metric versus the rest of the, the postcranial skeleton. And just to see what is the correlation between head size, the, the brain case size, and the postcranial skeleton. And in Scottish Terriers, it's completely disproportionate. And this is really curious because uh, one, of the other one of the other genes that I discover that's driving skull traits, I found in brachycephalic dogs, these short-faced dogs, but I also found it in Scottish Terriers. And the data never made sense to me exactly. And now it's, I think we, we're on to something. So those of you that are, that are keen on this data would say, well, of course, if you're going to take brain case size and compare it to the postcranial size, well, they have short legs. Of course, there's, it's going to appear inflated. And that's exactly what I thought, too. So then I looked at, I, I looked at uh, 20 measurements in these full skeletons of dogs, including head and, and postcranial skeletons. And I ran principal components again, just to break this variation down. And the first component explains body size. So not surprisingly, when you rank the dogs in terms of PC1, they rank in terms of how large they are. So you have Danes and Irish Wolfhounds up here, and then you have your Chihuahua down here. And not surprisingly, every measurement, you don't have to really be concerned with what the measurements are. There's 20 of them. They're all highly correlated. Because if you're going to grow in size, if you're going to make an animal larger, you're not just going to make one bone larger and keep the others statically small. They all grow or they all get smaller. So they're highly correlated. That's OK. But what we really want to look at are the other principal components, like principal component two. And here in principal component two, the Scottish Terrier is matching up with our pug. Somewhat, it's hard. The colors are kind of blue, um, 
a little faint, but it's matching, matching with a, a Alano Espanol, it's a Spanish Mastiff, a Bull Mastiff. These are dogs that are more flat-faced, and yet the Scottish Terrier is, is, seems to be, in terms of its second principal component, it's matching with them. And so now I can go over here and I can look at, well, what measurements are driving this correlation? And what I see are measurements, and I'm, ma I'm marking them here with the, the yellow, the gold stars, these are measurements that are taken from the skull. It's not leg length, it's skull. And so what we're finding is, in fact, um, we're, we're, with this phenotype and genotype data, we're able now to break the skull down into manageable bits, different, uh, 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 landmark, uh, different areas, and look at correlations. And so there is, maybe this makes sense, maybe the, the, Nor uh, the Scottish Terriers do have some commonality with other flat-faced breeds dog flat-faced breed dogs. It's not the face, but rather the neurocranium. I mentioned two approaches to collecting genotype-phenotype data. And the second approach is, is really working, utilizing what I have in the backyard at Easterbush campus. And this is the, the Royal Dick uh, School for Veterinary Studies, specifically the Hospital for Small Animals. This school is, is among the tops in the UK for being able to image patients. And what's really nice about this school is not only are they seeing breed dogs, but they're seeing mixed breed dogs. And mixed breed dogs open up a whole new avenue in terms of being able to do trait mapping. And of course, you know, the patients that are coming to this hospital, there's uh, uh, pristine record keeping on these dogs. So we have a, a lot of information from these animals. And so this really opens up a lot of, of possibilities in terms of not only um, mapping traits, but also mapping how traits influence companion animal health. Because although tonight I mostly, we, we've kind of made light of our dear friend, the Scottish Terrier, there are some traits in animals that are, are really not good. And so, you know, things like brachycephalic airway syndrome, where, you know, the, the airways are really being occluded. Um, things like hydrocephalus or sinonasal tumors, these are things that we can use. We can use the imaging capacity at the hospital and the genotypes that we produce and really map in and try to address these companion animal health challenges. And this is just a, you know, this is a scan, a 3D reconstruction, but over here is a scan of one of the patients and I can landmark these skulls just as they were a, oh, I meant to pass these around. Um, just as they were this skull in front of me. So there's a lot of data to be had here. Finally, I, I just want to uh, end by saying, you know, dogs can help us too. Um, dogs are, are can, you know, in some instances have biology that's, that's more akin to humans than, than, than other lab models, fish, mice. And so it's not to say that any one model is not you know, worthy or, or, or has its value, but they're, they're, depending on the, the disease and the process, the biology, some models are better than others. And so when we talk about you know, skull morphology, you know, in the dogs, this is, this is a, a breed of dog, and, and, but you know, of course, if someone a six-month-old is, is born with Apert syndrome, wouldn't we want to know what's causing this? Can we help this individual um, with, with pharmacological intervention or, or pharmacological and, and surgical intervention? 
And so I think there's value in understanding these morphological traits and what impacts can they have on helping us understand human disease processes. So I'll end tonight, remind you, when you're out on the street and you see that Scottish Terrier, you can say, oh man, your dog has an R-spondin-2 mutation. Or you know, you could, you, there's a little bit of trivia here. Feel free to use it. Um, and then I just want to uh, give a very long list of acknowledgments. A lot of the data, as I mentioned earlier, was from my postdoc days. But we're, we're, I'm here to, to really integrate with uh, my colleagues at the Roslyn Institute and the Royal Dick School of Veterinary Studies. Um, we have interesting new international collaborations going on. We have collaborations across, uh, across the town that I'm very excited about. And I would be remiss if I didn't uh, feature these names. These are the many clinicians that I talk with on a day-to-day -day basis that, that really got excited and are, are really rising to the challenge to, to bring this skull morphology project to fruition and to really develop new projects in genomics uh, to address disease. I'm indebted to David Argyle for recruiting me uh, here. I love the University of Edinburgh, and I love Easterbush campus and, and what I'm, I'm able to do. I'm also, uh, I want to point out uh, Dr. Richard Mellenby, who's my, he's my foot soldier. He's the guy that, that he moves things through the hospital and gets things done. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, um, there's a, Scott Kilpatrick and Donna Gaylor uh, both um, work very closely and helped me get, build our biospecimen uh, repository going. What am I doing here? My original question, well, I have a, a loving family. And they know how much I love dog genetics and morphology. And uh, my daughter, she loves the house. She loves dogs. But uh, they, they said, when this opportunity came about, they said, go for it and go do it. And uh, I'm looking forward to being reunited with them soon. Finally, um, it's you guys. Uh, that, you know, My science is really a citizen science, in a way. I mean, we depend on the patients that come into the hospital. I depend on the blood samples that I could collect at dog shows. And really, without that, you know, without that generosity, we could not do the trait mapping, the disease mapping that we do. And so um, I want to thank you. And uh, if you're interested in what we do, you know, check out Dog's Life. It's a, a, it's a very interesting project. We're uh, trying to recruit Labradors for this. You know, things like post-mortem donations, you know, this is a really difficult subject when our, when our loved ones pass. But um, think about it. It's, it. There's a lot we can learn from, from your donations. And then finally, if, if you want to learn more, come and visit us at the Campus Open Day. So I'll stop here and take any questions. short of time, but I, 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 we'll take one question, and then you can talk to Jeff during the, uh, during the uh, break outside. <laughs> Any questions at all? Yes. So Jeff, does, does the Scottish I'm not touching that one, Ian. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that's a dangerous, <laughs> yeah, yeah, dangerous yeah, yeah. route to You're go You're setting down. me up, Ian, and that's not fair. I, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's uh, it comes down to trainability, and is that really intelligence? And 
I don't know of a really well-designed study that's measuring this. And I know there's been people that have claimed that you know, X, and X, X and Y breed are the most intelligent border collies. Elaine would tell you border collies are by far the most intelligent. Maybe. My dog didn't listen worth a damn, but you know he was great. And, and uh, uh, he'd come 50% of the times back to me. And uh, <laughs> I thought he was doing well. I thought he was intelligent. I think that was the Henry Kissinger answer. I think that was <laughs> yeah. very good. Yeah, that's um, yeah. uh, well, just, just to finish tonight, um, I think that was a fantastic start to the, to the lecture series. I think that was um, a, a really great lecture, Jeff. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I, this may cause controversy, but I think Edinburgh invented comparative biology. Um, and veterinary medicine and human medicine at this university has been intertwined for the last few hundred years. And it's fantastic, I think, to see the, the current generation of researchers maintaining that very strong philosophy that we have here, which is one health, one biology, one medicine. And I think what we learn in dogs uh, can, can pass over to human medicine. And equally, I think humans can be very good models for veterinary diseases as well sometimes. So uh, with that, if we could just thank Jeff again in, in the usual way, and then we'll head outside for some refreshments. So thank you very much. <laughs>